Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments challenging the Texas abortion law yesterday that bans the procedure after about six weeks of pregnancy and deputizes private citizens to enforce it. Several justices appeared skeptical of the law. We'll look at their responses and look ahead to other major cases on the court's docket, including one that challenges states' rights to restrict guns in public, and another over regulating greenhouse gas emissions. We'll get started right after this news. This is Forum, I'm Mina Kim. The U.S. Supreme Court is set to hear arguments tomorrow on a major gun rights case that could lead to more guns being carried in public and in public places. Then in less than a month, it will hear a case on a Mississippi law that poses a serious threat to Roe v. Wade. Also before the high court's 6-3 conservative majority, the question of how aggressively the federal government can act to address climate change. The stage is set for what could be one of the most consequential Supreme Court terms in years. And we'll begin by looking back at arguments yesterday in the controversial Texas abortion ban after six weeks of pregnancy. For a look at how the justices responded and what it signals for the fate of Texas's law, we turn first to Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor and Director at the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine School of Law. Her recent book is Policing the Womb, Invisible Women, and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Professor Goodwin, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be back with you. One of the stories that seemed to come out of yesterday's hearings is that the justices, at least three conservative justices, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Coney Barrett, and also uh, Justice Roberts, seemed skeptical of the Texas law. Can you remind us what provisions they seemed most concerned about? Because it didn't seem like they were terribly interested in looking at the constitutionality or asking about the constitutionality of a six-week ban in, in light of Roe. That's right. And in fact, the substance of the law itself is not what the court was taking up, but rather it's a rather unusual procedural mechanism that is a part of the law. That is that this law does not have an enforcement mechanism by a person 
uh, who is an officer of the state. Rather, what the state of Texas has done has been to give this authority to any citizen in the state of Texas to be able to enforce the law on the state's behalf. It is this particular aspect of the law that the Department of Justice took up in its challenge against Texas. And Texas has said that, well, the federal government doesn't have anything at stake here. And the response from the federal government is that, yes, the federal government is responsible for making sure that the constitutional rights, which we all have, are protected no matter where we are, including in the state of Texas. And moreover, what Texas has done has been to intentionally make it difficult for any person who is harmed by this law to be able to essentially sue. And furthermore, the real key issue here, which was the matter that was uh, emphasized by General Prelogger in uh, the oral argument, is that basically what Texas has intentionally decided to do is to thwart uh, federal supremacy, the supremacy that would come through the Supreme Court and its rulings, as well as uh, through Congress in Section 1983. And so this is a case that in some ways, yes, it's about abortion, but more specifically, it's about who has the authority to be able to challenge federal law. And can the state of Texas or any given state say that we don't have to abide by what the Supreme Court says or what Congress says? And that's really what's at stake here. And of course, no state can do that. So what were some of the effects that, for example, Justice Kavanaugh was concerned about? So what Justice Kavanaugh is concerned about is whether there was any given state that could decide to enact a law like this. It doesn't necessarily have to be about abortion. It could be about gun rights or anything else and essentially thwart and undermine um, federal rulings, Supreme Court rulings. Uh, and that is his concern. And that's the concern largely amongst the conservatives on the court with regard to this law. Like, for example, uh, a blue state um, thwarting uh, gun rights laws that the Supreme Abs Court has. Absolutely. Yes. So in recent years, there have been challenges to states that have enacted uh, gun control restrictions, and those restrictions have been overturned by the United States Supreme Court through the mechanisms that have been put in place by Texas. Um, and in fact, this Supreme Court, through a shadow docket ruling, not intervening against the Texas law, it could be seen as a blueprint for how to go about uh, undermining Supreme Court authority. So a blue state could, in effect, enact a very restrictive uh, gun control measure, place it in the hands of citizens to do the enforcement, uh, and then tie the hands of individuals who are harmed by the law in the state of Texas to be able to get any relief against the state because of this very sophisticated civil procedure entanglement, which was emphasized as quite purposeful in terms of what Texas has done. And to just give a little bit more backdrop to that, it's highly unusual where a state will say or enact a law where there is no one in the, no agent of the state, no officer of the state responsible for its enforcement and just simply leaving it to citizens. Now, it's not that citizens 
um, haven't been able to sue when they have been injured by something that the state has done. But this specific mechanism is so incredibly uh, unique. And we heard that over and over again, emphasized by those who are litigating against the law yesterday. What was Justice's Amy Coney Barrett's concern with this? So similarly with Justice Barrett, she was equally concerned about what this kind of law uh, could mean. She said, for example, I just want to follow up briefly on the question that Justice Kagan and now Justice Sotomayor were asking you about what happens to your suit if the plaintiff in the whole woman's health suits prevail. And she says, let's imagine that they do prevail on a theory that the attorney general has this residuum of authority and that the private parties can be bound as state actors pursuant to a federal uh, procedural rule. Um, she says that the force of your argument, meaning the, the lawyers who were arguing in this case for equity here, is that the inadequacy of a remedy at law because of the way that Texas has cut off access. So the concern here is that Texas has cut off access for individuals to be able to vindicate their rights in the state of Texas. And that is so highly unusual. And also that it's incredibly lopsided if individuals do attempt to vindicate their rights. It's incredibly lopsided the way in which the law has been written in Texas. And that is to say, we have to keep in mind that uh, this law provides for at least $10,000 in recovery and relief uh, for individuals who sue someone who aids and abets uh, in the pregnancy termination. And the other thing that the law does as well is that it provides attorney's fees for those individuals. Now, one thing that I think is important to address is that Texas says, well, this is important. Um, it's important for people to be able to sue because these individuals have somehow been harmed. But what's interesting about the law is that it provides this relief only for first comers. And that basically suggests that what Texas is saying here is more illusory than real. It really is about chilling the right to abortion because not every person can get a kind of double take against someone uh, that they feel they are harmed by who has sought to have an abortion. So clearly there were some key conservative justices who expressed skepticism, but for anyone Michelle Goodwin tempted to think that this shows more support for abortion rights than previously thought, what would you say? Well, this cannot be understood, the oral arguments here, and we will not know exactly how the court will rule until we have its opinion. But this was a procedural matter that the court was taking up. It was not addressing the substance of the issue. That is to say that this is a court, we have to remember that through the shadow docket, refused to intervene in the case earlier on. Uh, we also know through Justices uh, Alito and prior rulings, Justice Thomas and prior rulings, Justice Kavanaugh and private uh, prior rulings, uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett and, and her private statements that these are individuals um, and Justice Gorsuch, too, in prior rulings when he was on the Tenth Circuit, are individuals who have not been sympathetic to reproductive health rights and justice and specifically abortion rights. And so here, any kinds of exceptions that we might see in terms of uh, providing some form of a relief against this Texas law relates to the uh, procedural right. aspects of it. 
So if, in fact, the justices do decide that people can bring challenges to the Texas law in federal court, what does that really effectively do? What would be the impact of that? It would go to the lower courts, essentially, to... That's that's absolutely right, which means that it hopefully provides a more equal playing field for individuals in this case than to be able to take up the substantive claim. And if individuals are able to address the substantive claim, then what we see is that Roe and Planned Parenthood v. Casey and Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstead are still laws of the land, which basically is that the constitutional right to an abortion still exists in the United States and is preserved through Supreme Court rulings as recently as 2019-2020 term, where the Supreme Court took up a case, June Medical v. Rousseau, again upholding the right to be able to terminate a pregnancy in the United States, striking down a Louisiana law that was very similar, almost verbatim to a Texas law that the Supreme Court had struck down uh, in the 2016 term. Right. But then in less than a month, and we are coming up on a break here, the Supreme Court will hear a case that is a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade and ask the question about the constitutionality of uh, abortion bans pre-viability. That is where you will see more of the potential issues that uh, abortion rights advocates, for example, are concerned about. That's exactly right, because that particular ban now um, has not gone into effect. Just a, a judge, Carlton Reeves, a federal court judge, wrote a brilliant opinion in that case. It's worth looking at the footnotes. But that is a case that involves a 15-week uh, abortion ban. And, and that particular uh, ban also provides no exceptions for cases of rape or incest, and it is a direct challenge uh, to Roe and Planned Parenthood v. Casey because uh, it is a ban that is to go into effect uh, pre-viability, which the Supreme Court has always preserved and protected the right to be able to terminate a pregnancy pre-viability, which has basically been um, in the third term. Well, we are talking about the Supreme Court and yesterday's oral arguments about SB8, Texas's abortion law. What are your impressions of the justices' response to it? What are your questions for Michelle Goodwin? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about the Supreme Court, beginning with yesterday's oral arguments about SB 8. We'll also be talking about tomorrow's arguments in a major Second Amendment case and the court's decision to hear a case that would limit the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. We're joined by Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor and Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine School of Law. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What are your questions or reactions to what you're hearing about how arguments went yesterday with regard to the Texas law? What would you like to know about the Supreme Court's other major pending abortion case, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which uh, has put in place uh, is a Mississippi law that has put in place a 15-week ban on abortions. Again, pre-viability. You can join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. And Steve from Washington asks, do you sense Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh will attempt to guide the court to a new consensus slightly to the right of the Chief Justice? Michelle Goodwin. That's certainly possible. Um, The concern, so for those who are trying to guess what the court might do, they're suggesting that it's possible that the court could strike down this Texas law, while in the Dobbs case, where oral arguments will be heard on December 1st, that the court could be substantively more sympathetic there, which is uh, the direction that the most conservatives on the most conservative of the conservatives on the court are leaning towards. Um, Justice Roberts no longer really matters, some say. I mean, I think that he does. But where people are saying that Justice Roberts vote doesn't matter anymore is that in recent cases, both in terms of the first challenge to SB 8, and also in June Medical v. Rousseau, uh, Justice Roberts sided with the liberals on the court. And there it is, one could say, that he's really concerned about the rule of law and concerned about uh, the respect for precedent um, and the court. And so it is possible that Amy Coney Barrett and also Brett Kavanaugh, those justices, could lead the court to the right. It's very likely that they will, in fact, lead the court to the right on matters of reproductive health and rights. Do you think that the court will decide the Texas case before its usual timeline in June? That is quite possible as well. Uh, So the court decided to uh, take this case up on an emergency review. Uh, We heard the oral arguments yesterday. It's possible that the court could rule on this matter before the end of the month. Uh, There certainly are lives that are affected uh, by this Texas law right now. There are individuals who are suing to enforce the law. There are individuals who are fleeing from the state of Texas in order to have their pregnancy terminations in other places. So clearly people are affected right now by this law. Uh, being in effect. I want to bring more two more people into the conversation. Margaret Russell is with us, professor of constitutional law at Santa Clara University School of Law. Professor Russell, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much. Also with us is David Levine, professor at UC Hastings College of the Law. Professor Levine, glad to have you on as well. Thanks for having me again, Mina. I want to turn now to arguments that are set for tomorrow 
In a major Second Amendment case called New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, and Margaret Russell, could you explain what's at issue in this gun rights case and why it's being called potentially a major case? Uh, yes, certainly. I'll, I'll start with the second part, uh, why it's being called potentially a major case. And it is, it's actually because it's been over a decade since the landmark case of the Second Amendment, D.C. versus Heller, was decided with, and this is a substantially different court, but it's still important to remember that D.C. versus Heller um, was decided 5-4 by a court um, for, the, for the proposition that the Second Amendment um, is justifiably and historically interpreted to cover private ownership and use of guns. So uh, this is a case that is going back to that question, um, and it's dealing with not head-on whether or not that was constitutional, not at all, but whether or not there are limits to a New York's a New York law that gives licensing authority to the state and requires people who want to carry guns in concealed fashion in public, um, whether or not New York has that authority. So, uh, so essentially the challenge is uh, to New York men who, who applied under the law and, and a guns, gun rights group, the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association is also involved. They are challenging the law because the men applied and had applications rejected because the licensing officer for New York determined they had not adequately proven they needed to carry the weapons. And this case is challenging the authority of New York to have that discretion to deny an application on the basis of thinking that the applicant does not have a sufficient and specific reason for the concealed carry permit. Mm. And that argument is tomorrow. Right. I know. Very, very soon. And Professor David Levine, California has a similar law to New York's law, correct? That basically a person wanting to carry a weapon in public or concealed carry has to demonstrate a need for it, some kind of proper cause. Right. That's absolutely right, Mina. Uh, and as a result, there are uh, relatively few of those permits in California. Uh, in the uh, Chronicle this morning, the article that they have uh, about this very issue says that there's only one concealed weapons permit that's been issued in San Francisco, for example. Mm. All of LA County, 10 million people, uh, fewer than 400. And uh, if the New York statute goes down or uh, the, the holding is that uh, the local authorities have to be much more deferential to a request for a concealed carry permit. Uh, the numbers in California with people just walking around with concealed carry weapons could go up dramatically, uh, in, in, just moving from hundreds to tens of thousands, let's say, of uh, people with concealed carry uh, guns in L.A. County. And this is essentially anywhere, right? Stores, uh Airports. I'm trying to think of. You well, know. well, the question would be how restrictive would it be? I mean, I don't. Depending on how broadly the conservative majority were to rule in this case, I suppose potentially, uh, you know, you could be out as far as you know. Let's say the extreme NRA position would be anytime, anywhere. Uh, bring yeah, bring them right onto airport into airports, uh, et cetera, et cetera, into government buildings. But more likely, this would have to do with sort of a generalized ability to 
get a license to have concealed carry, and then there would be exceptions would be carved out for something like a high security area, uh, courthouses, that sort of thing. But it entirely depends on where five or six justices of this court want to go with this. Yes, and Margaret Russell, as you noted, this is you know, the first major Second Amendment case that uh, the court is taking up since 2008 in D.C. versus Heller. And even then, where the court held that Americans have a Second Amendment right to keep firearms in their homes for self-defense, there were a lot of conditions that were written into the language. For example, I think it was written by Scalia, who said that it should not be taken to cast out on long-standing prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, nor on laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places, such as schools and government buildings and so on. But since Heller, three new conservative justices, David Levine is noting, have joined the bench. So what does that spell, do you think? Well, I think uh, what it spells is quite likely, and of course, we're always loath to predict, but quite likely a victory for New York State Rifle and the individual uh, original plaintiffs. And the, the reason why I say that is it's very interesting that if you look at D.C. versus Heller and the, the majority opinion, as you noted, by Scalia, and then the dissent by uh, Justice Stevens, the late Justice Stevens, it's their dueling historical arguments. It, this is not just a case of just originalism on one side. Oh, Second Amendment originally, of course, it co covers broad private use of guns. It's the dissent using history to argue against that. So it's actually a very, it'll, I'm sure it will be an interesting um, oral argument and opinion, once again, revisiting what the original meaning of the Second Amendment is. The other thing that I wanted to mention quickly is that the the amicus briefs, the, so, the friend of the court briefs, that you know may or may not have any particular influence in a case, they are quite broad and in some ways unpredicted. Um, you have briefs by black public defense and legal, black public legal aid lawyers pointing out that people who suffer from this licensing requirement can be black and brown people of color who are charged with felonies for possession of a fire. So, um, you know, that's very, it's a very different lineup of amicus briefs from what I would have expected. Hmm. David Levine, can you talk about or just give us some context for the Supreme Court agreeing to even take this case? My understanding is that it was not a question where there was a lot of dispute in the lower courts about states' ability to restrict uh, public carry of guns. I think that's right. As Professor Russell said, uh, the Heller opinion from 2008 left a lot of room for regulation absent what was at issue in the DC case, which was a ban on handguns in your own home. No, what's happened is that people like Justice Thomas, Justice Gorsuch have been writing uh, dissents from the denial of review of these cases over the last few years, uh, claiming that the rest of the court was treating the second amendment as a second class right. And you also have both Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett having gone out of their way as lower court judges to write concurring opinions that some took as uh, you know, uh, applications for the Supreme Court, going out of their way to take rather broad views of 
the uh, Second Amendment rights. And so I think the feeling is that this was more an impetus inside the court as opposed to the traditional uh, way to take up cases is that when you do get a split in the circuits and on this issue, there really hadn't been a split. We're talking about a major Second Amendment case that will be argued tomorrow. We're also talking about yesterday's oral arguments in Texas's abortion ban, SB8. We're talking with David Levine, professor at, UC, professor at UC Hastings College of the Law, Margaret Russell, a professor of constitutional law at Santa Clara University School of Law, and Michelle Goodwin, chancellor's professor and director at the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine's School of Law. And you, our listeners, are joining us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can post your thoughts and questions on Twitter or Facebook. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Let me go to Philip in Oxnard. Hi, Philip. Hello, how are you? Well, what's on your mind, Philip? Well, with regards to the abortion law in Texas, where they're, in essence, deputizing the citizens, it seems to me that that's a form of vigilantism, and that's not necessarily... A positive thing. I'm wondering if someone would talk about that. And it also seems to impact the uh, New York law on um, uh, concealed weapon carry. I'd appreciate an answer or at least a discussion on whether we're moving towards van, uh, vigilantism in Texas. Uh, Michelle Goodwin, Philip's question, I think, underscores some of the things that you were concerned about earlier. What's your response to what Philip is saying? That's right. So thank you, Philip, for that question. What this law does is it weaponizes in many ways, some could say, and Justice Sotomayor has called uh, individuals who are able to use these um, kind of weaponize their right, which is given to them by the state to sue people who aid and abet in pregnancy termination, that this is like bounty hunting, that this is like vigilantism, that this is like something that we saw from centuries ago with the fugitive slave laws that were enacted by our Congress to protect the interest of uh, people who were slave owners um, in the American South. The early earliest vestiges of this kind of uh, lawmaking involved uh, the tracking down, the hunting down of Black people who sought their freedom in free states, those individuals through federal laws, fugitive slave acts, were able to hunt down individuals, bring them before a magistrate, uh, while these black people were not even allowed um, to say anything in front of the magistrates, and then get a bounty for basically the capture and return of these individuals. And of course, there were many mistakes made, because uh, very often people that were captured under such laws uh, were not enslaved at all. And these kinds of uh, cases actually went up. One went up before the United States Supreme Court, which upheld the Prigg case, upheld the constitutionality of these kinds of laws. And so it is deeply troubling. We have seen this before, um, and it is alarming. One can imagine in the state of Texas right now that there could be uh, girls 12, 13 years old who've been raped or suffered from incest, uh, who right now feel as if they can't talk to their mother, can't talk to an aunt or someone who would provide care for them because of the vigilantism behind this law, because of the potential that the people that they speak to could be sued, and that could harm those individuals that they love and care about. Well, Bill writes, didn't Casey's undue burden standard supersede Roe's viability standard, in which case Dobbs' 15-week limitation should be legal? That's longer than Roe's first trimester. 
Well, that's not true. What the Supreme Court did not do in uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and it could have done, it could have struck down Roe. It did not strike down Roe. It built upon Roe's legacy. And in that case, the court did say that an abortion, a right to abortion will be protected and that states cannot impose uh, undue burdens and substantial obstacles in the pathway of a person being able to terminate a pregnancy. And this case in the Dobbs case with a 15-week abortion ban where there is only one abortion clinic in the state of Mississippi uh, would appear to be not only antithetical to the legacy of Roe, uh, but also to the uh, to the legacy of and what is currently law now in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Well, Daniel writes, and I know you need to leave us soon, Professor Goodwin, so let me just bring this last one to you. The Supreme Court seems to avoid certain issues like Second Amendment rights and abortion. They'll often split the difference by declaring the ruling applies only in that particular case, thus avoiding making a precedent or simply not hearing the case at all and remanding it back to a lower court. Do you see that happening in the Texas law? Well, that was at issue yesterday, and we heard that in the oral arguments. How far could this ruling extend? And to be clear, the Justice Department also sees this as a narrow case. Uh, it wants to be able to present it as a narrow case. Uh, what the court will do here, we don't know. But to the writers, um, to, to the extent of what the writer says, the substance of it, that's true. We saw in a case Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, where the Supreme Court for the first time said that private for-profit corporations actually have religious interest. And the court cabined that to just this particular uh, type of case. It involved the Affordable Care Act and uh, it involved Hobby Lobby saying that uh, it believed that IUDs and other kinds of contraception look like abortifacients to them. In an opinion that was written by Justice Alito, Justice Alito seemingly agreed and the conservatives on the court, it was a five to four decision. And the court was very clear, Justice Alito was very clear in saying this applies only to instances like this, which then would be to suggest that a corporation that believes it has a religious interest that aligns, let's say, with Jehovah's Witnesses could not say, we deny in our insurance plans the opportunity to get blood transfusions. And so we do see that in these cases, and it is alarming. Well, Michelle Goodwin, appreciate you being on. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Michelle Goodwin, a professor at UC Irvine School of Law, Margaret Russell of Santa Clara University School of Law, and David Levine of UC Hastings College of the Law will be with us after the break, and we will take up the case revolving the EPA's authority to limit emissions. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about some major cases ahead for the U.S. Supreme Court. We're talking about yesterday's oral arguments about Texas's abortion ban, SB8, tomorrow's arguments, and a major Second Amendment case. And we're also going to talk about the court's decision to hear a case that would limit the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. We're joined by Margaret Russell, professor of constitutional law at Santa Clara University School of Law, and David Levine, professor at UC Hastings College of the Law. And you, of course, are welcome to join the conversation with your questions about these cases, your reactions to what is being decided. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. David Levine, I want to turn to you. So the court just last week, I believe, agreed to hear a collection of cases that uh, were brought by coal companies and Republican-led states, and they're challenging the EPA's authority to curb greenhouse gas emissions from coal plants and so on. Can you talk about these cases and what they are, what they are about, what they're arguing? Sure. Uh, so we're going to be calling them, I think it's West Virginia versus EPA as the lead of the four cases, but you're quite right. It's several cases from a couple states, uh, from coal companies, and the, the, what's interesting is that the Supreme Court decided to step in now. And that's, I think, partially why people who are uh, seeking the ability of the Biden administration and other, court, other uh, administrations to do something about climate change are so worried. <clears throat> and the reason is that there's actually no specific regulations that are on the table right now. There had been uh, an Obama-era uh, rather sweeping uh, set of rules uh, under the Clean Air Act, but those actually have been put on hold pending further review, and then the Trump administration pulled it back, um, and the Biden administration would like to step back in. As you know, the president, after all, is in Glasgow right this minute, uh, talking about the need for different uh, taking bolder steps for climate change, including methane and, and other important uh, emissions. And here, by the Supreme Court stepping in now, what they're doing is they're really directly facing the question of whether the EPA has any authority to step in, as opposed to looking at the question of whether particular regulations are acceptable, and or whether the EPA needs more detailed authority from Congress over and above what they have under the Clean Air Act and other statutes, which are now 30, 40 years old, meaning good luck getting anything through Congress. Are we in a similar situation here, David Levine, as we are in the guns case, where the U.S. Supreme Court is agreeing to look at something where there really doesn't seem to be a lot of dispute, or at least lower courts seem to have repeatedly affirmed that uh, EPA does have authority under the Clean Air Act to curb greenhouse gas emissions? Or to regulate the power sector, essentially. Right. And even the Supreme Court has said said that in the (laughs) past. Uh, Massachusetts versus EPA. uh, That's right. uh, That that they can do it. And so, yeah, it's the question of is this being driven 
by standard rules that the Supreme Court operates under, meaning that they're there to resolve disputes, they should only decide something when it's absolutely necessary, or is this being driven more by an agenda because now that you've got five or sometimes six extremely conservative justices on the court, are they going to just run with their power? And this EPA case could be an example of that. The Solicitor General's office said, don't take it, it's premature. Let's see when and if the EPA actually proposes some regulations. There'll be plenty of time to do this. But, but certainly you could, you could look at this, you could look, well, Dobbs for that matter, the abortion case that's gonna be decided in December, let alone tomorrow's gun case, all of them are instances where the Supreme Court has decided that they need to step in, even though under the traditional rules of how the court operates, they shouldn't be doing it. And all three are in that pattern. Well, Steve writes, voting rights, abortion, guns, these issues are often in front of the Supreme Court. It's a sorry state of affairs that nine unelected people should be so empowered to decide the fate of millions of Americans for decades to come. What do your guests think about the chances of Congress taking up these issues in a meaningful way? Margaret Russell, what do you think? There has been some question as to whether or not, I mean, these are also very big questions about who has authority, Congress or, or the courts as well, but to Steve's question about the chances of Congress taking up these issues in a meaningful way, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I, I'd be very curious to hear what my colleague David thinks about this, but I, I really come down um, by going to the phrase unelected judges, I don't think judges should be elected, actually. Um, and that uh, to the extent that we see the politicization of the court, um, electing or, or putting judges up for election would just make that worse. Second, I do think that the commission um, that is studying alternatives to the current structure of the Supreme Court really needs to tread carefully. Uh, I realize that lifetime appointment uh, that was established at a time when people were, when justices were not and could not um, live to age 90 or so and stay on the court. But there is a lot to be said for treading ca very carefully and not just situationally depending upon the, the, the current composition of a court. Well, depending on how this Supreme Court acts, do you think, say, for example, um, you know, Roe is gutted, gun rights are significantly expanded and states' ability to restrict uh, the concealed carry of guns in public is um, curtailed. Do you think that the major reforms that have been tossed about, like adding justices or creating term li limits for these uh, justices, will have new momentum, Margaret Russell? Oh, absolutely. And and I want to be honest in saying that the the current state of the Supreme Court um, is uh, is very troubling. I think that the comment by now Chief Justice Roberts when he was nominated saying, you know, judges, I'm just there to call balls or strikes. I'm like an umpire. Even if that was just truthful, wishful thinking on his part, he surely knows. And we all know that these decisions have enormous political impact. The cases that are being selected procedurally in the ways that they are being selected and the timing of them. And the, one example is the CO2 case in which there really wasn't, there's not a living plan um, for the justices to grant review on. I think it reveals a lot of political machinations of the court. And so 
so, so reform is definitely needed. Well, let me go to caller Alan in Berkeley. Hi, Alan. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I have a quick comment and then a question for your um, panelists. The comment is in light of the, the what you're just talking about, I wonder why we don't hear people talking about activist conservative justices in the same way that the conservative moon has been so successful in putting that label on so-called liberal judges. But my that's the comment. And the question is um, on the role of ideology in politics versus so-called umpiring and neutral application of the laws. Do the panelists think that if the law at, uh, at issue in uh, Texas were instead gun control or religious rights under the same kind of private enforcement bounty hunter provision, let's say San Francisco passed a law prohibiting all private possession of handguns for any reason that could be enforced by pri- only private citizens, do you think the justices would have kept their hands off of that law for as long as they did with abortion? Or even more absurdly, perhaps, outlawing a particular religion or religious practice. Mormonism can't be practiced in, in the state of California. Would the justices have sat on their hands in the same way that they did with respect to abortion rights? Well, let me... Go to David Levine on that. What is your reaction to what Alan is saying here, David? Well, I think if, if you ask that question about, well, what if, say, California were to emulate Texas and create a private right of action for anybody uh, carrying, you know, carrying a handgun in a way that uh, California decided was bad? Uh, I, I think it's quite clear that the Supreme Court might have acted differently. And we can take that from Justice Kavanaugh. Justice Kavanaugh in his questioning yesterday was clearly concerned about that. The implications of allowing this Texas statute to stand, what would stop other states from invading rights just as our caller suggested? And I do think that's probably gonna carry the day. That hypo will probably carry the day in terms of uh, an opinion, if we do see it, striking down the Texas law, the fear that it would lead to these uh, other states uh, passing copycat statutes. Well, a comment from Curtis who writes, the rights that would be negatively impacted if the Texas law were upheld are most certainly going to be the rights of the most vulnerable Americans. This is why protecting every single right in the Constitution is so vital for the very survival of American democracy. There will not be a similar threat to the Second Amendment or religious freedoms. The rights of the most vulnerable are in grave danger. And uh, let me go to caller Wynn in Menlo Park. Hi, Wynn. Hi. Um, wasn't the uh, Supreme Court action when they took the Citizens United case and remanded it to a lower court with a direction that actually wanted a bigger issue than the one that had already been presented with some minor case? Didn't they signal that they were taking over a big portion of what's going on in the country? Hmm. Margaret Russell? Yes, you are correct that when uh, when the litigation um, leading to Citizens United was was being litigated. It did not present uh, the question to the court that it decided to grant review on. And the Supreme Court does have the power to define and articulate other questions that it wants to have briefed before the court. That's exactly what they did. You're very correct. And I think that act in itself was 
was a big signal of of the the influence of um, ideology over Supreme Court procedure. We're talking with Margaret Russell, professor of constitutional law at Santa Clara University School of Law. David Levine is professor at UC Hastings College of the Law. And you, our listeners, are joining us with your questions about the Texas law, about the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization case that will come up in December. That is challenging Roe v. Wade. You are asking questions about concealed carry rules in California as they are being challenged in New York and California has similar ones. Also, if you have questions about the EPA's limit, uh, the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions and efforts to try to limit them, you can do so at 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Um, David, are there other cases this term that you'd like to draw listeners' attention to? I know that in December, for example, the court will hear arguments in a case about religious instruction and whether taxpayer dollars can be used for that. Is that one that also is on your radar? Oh, absolutely. Yes, it's called Carson versus Mackin. It comes out of Maine. And the question is uh, that Maine has a rule barring the use of student aid programs for schools uh, that teach religious content. And this case could further shift the line between separation of church and state. Uh, 2020, the Supreme Court moved the line uh, in a case out of Montana. uh, And this case in Maine could uh, do the same, could push in that direction of effectively requiring states to use public dollars or public education dollars to support religious instruction. Uh, And that would be part of that underlying project that I think that several of our Supreme Court justices have, which is to shift the line in favor of more religion, uh, more free exercise of religion, and uh, less cabining of it than we've had in the past. So that certainly is one. Uh, There's a campaign finance case, uh, which uh, Senator Ted Cruz has brought. Uh, And then third, the one I'll uh, stop with is uh, one called Ramirez, which is an execution case. Uh, One of the few times that the Supreme Court recently has stopped in execution, but again, it's a religious case because the question is whether the prisoner uh, it can be uh, allowed or required that if he desires to have a spiritual advisor right with him in the death chamber, touching him and praying during the execution. Uh, and, and a Supreme Court that otherwise has not been very uh, solicitous of hearing death penalty cases, they, they reached in for this one and they paused this execution until they can rule on that. So there's a number of cases that are on the docket already, let alone ones that are looming, that uh, have great potential to make changes in the way we understand how the Supreme Court works. Professor Russell, which ones would you highlight? Uh, Well, I uh, definitely agree, and I'm particularly interested in the religious freedom uh, ones as well. I would add to that, and I want to mention it really for two reasons, a, a case called Um, that started with Arizona versus city and county of San Francisco and now is um, referred to by the names of a number of Republican-led states that want to go back to something that the Trump administration issued in the area of immigration, um, which is sometimes called the public charge rule. And during the Trump administration, um, uh, there was a, a, a rule that was quite strict um, on ineligibility for a green card if the government believes that 
applicants are likely to rely too heavily on government aid or that that would make them the so-called public charge. There were challenges earlier to that rule. Um, there were courts of appeals that, that ruled that the uh, rule was unconstitutional. But then when the Biden administration, Biden administration came on, um, there was an agreement uh, between the challengers and the Biden administration that the case would be dismissed, that the public charge rule would no longer be in effect, according, but according to Biden. So like the CO2 case that, that David talked about, that's a posture in which nothing would have to be done. And the Supreme Court's usual rule of taking up cases for particular compelling reasons, um, I think was really set aside. And, and, and here's why. Um, very recently, just in, I think it was last week, the justices decided to allow uh, a case to come back to the court um, in which um, 13 states led by Arizona decide that they wanna sort of pick up the argument that the Biden administration has dropped. That is, they want the Supreme Court to take a look at the public charge rule and the Biden administration's decision um, to, to, to let it go, to let it lapse. That's not so much a live dispute, I think, in my opinion, but by taking this case, the Supreme Court, I think, is, as it did in the CO2 case and others, it's using procedure and its own power to take up substantive issues that don't need to be there. And that's very troubling to me. Very troubling, because what does it mean? I think because, well, first, I think it, it gets to the merits of the case, even though this is not a case on the merits. This case procedurally is on the question of whether or not these Republican-led states can intervene in a lawsuit that had had previously been res resolved. Can they intervene and basically pick up the argument and try right. to have the rule come back? So that's troubling in the area of immigration, but think about the implications for other areas as, as well. I, um, yes. The Supreme Court gets so many petitions for review. It has to have you know, great care in selecting the cases that it, that it needs to hear. Why is it hearing this one? Right. And we just have 30 seconds left. But but right, David Levine, I think these broader patterns that we're seeing, like as listeners are listening to arguments in these cases, seeing how the Supreme Court rules, what do you think is important for them to keep in mind about this newly constituted Supreme Court? Well, as Margaret says, uh, are they overreaching? Are they looking at cases that they don't have to look at? And then uh, what, what kind of rulings do we get? Do we get traditionally narrow ones or very broad ones? Well, there's just no rights. Let's remember that we're in this position because Senate Republicans played dirty when they would not even have hearings for Merrick Garland, then turned around jamming through Amy Coney Barrett. So much ahead of this Supreme Court, this term, so much major things already argued. David Levine, Margaret Russell, thanks to you both. Also, thanks to Susie Britton for producing today's segment. Thanks to our listeners for their questions and insights. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.